All right, welcome everyone to Sunday School. It is 2.01, so let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Lord Father God, we do thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this day you've given us to rest and to worship you, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together to worship your name, God. Father, as we come now to um, study one certain aspect of your law, Lord, please help us to um, have hearts that delight in your word, delight in your law, as, as the psalmist will proclaim, and to have a greater honor, respect for your name, for your law, for your will, Lord. Please let your word do its work in us. Please help us to learn from these things and to ultimately glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing on in God's law, specifically looking at the threefold division. This was something that Pastor Ryan brought up last month when he was kind of bringing us up into the Exodus 20 arena of dealing with the Ten Commandments specifically. So I do want to go over what I had gone over last month because I, I, we've mostly been dealing with the moral law, how that's separate, how that's different and otherly, um, or a separate part of the law. And last week I wanted us to, or sorry, last month, I'm probably going to say last week again, but I mean last month. Last month I, want us to, I wanted us to mainly see how love is related to the law, how it's important, how, you know, like I said, I grew up just, well, we're under grace, not the law, so I could pretty much just forget the Old Testament. It was kind of how it was, unfortunately. But anyways, I think some of these quotes that we ran through last week can give us good reminders of all of this. So let's read through these. This comes from R.C. Sproul, quote, the law is not an abstract set of rules and regulations. The law reflects the will of the lawgiver, and in that regard, it is intensely personal. The law reflects to the creature the perfect will of the creator, and at the same time reveals the character of, those, of that being whose law it is. The law of God proceeds from God, from God's being, and reflects his character. One might say, you know, but the Ten Commandments just have all these, well, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. It just gives me negative things. It doesn't tell me anything positive. Last time we looked at the Orthodox Catechism or Unorthodox Catechism to kind of review um, some things about the law. This time I want to look at the Shorter Catechism. So let's go through a couple of questions real quick. Question 42. What is the duty which God requires of man? Answer. The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Of course, we see from Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. Question 43. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? Answer. The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. We see that in Romans 2, and these are all things Pastor Ryan's already gone over again. This is just a really quick review. Question 44. Where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Answer. The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And lastly, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our minds, and our neighbors as ourselves. And the Catechism, as you can see there, basically quotes Jesus from Matthew, and as well, hold on, let me get rid of that really annoying, there we go. Basically sums up Jesus, uh, the Old Testament, Noah, how they explain the law as well. This is nothing new. Um, this is pretty standard orthodoxy. 
Another thing we looked at ultimately was how the law is fulfilled and how the fulfilling of the law is love. Uh, that's just that's a straight equal sign there. We concluded by looking at Romans 13, which said, Romans 13, 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And where do all those come from? Those are all you recognize from the second table of the law, right? The Ten Commandments, of course, this isn't an exhaustive list, even mentions. And if there are any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10 is kind of the, the climax of all this. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is the overarching ethic of God's people. This is how we bear family resemblance to our God, because this will is his law. It reveals who he is. As Pastor Ryan likes to put it, we see the heart of Christ when we look at the law. And here we're all basically talking about the moral law of God, summed up in the Ten Commandments. We can also see this in recognizing that the law was also a covenant. We, we mentioned that as well. But it's not just, we shouldn't think of it as a dead document. It's just a cold-hearted love. When I married my wife, I didn't just, we didn't just, here's a piece of paper, let's sign it, we're married. No, there was, there was warm heartness, there was warm vows, there were smiles and kisses and people laughing and rejoicing and whatnot. And this is true of God's law as well. So though the law was used as a legal bond, as a covenant, we shouldn't think of it just as, again, cold as stale, cold and stale. I like how Dr. J.B. Fesco puts it, quote, It is also the rule of love between God and his people. Recall the first and greatest commandment, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thine soul, and with all thy might. This same emphasis can be found in Christ's teaching to the church. If ye love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Hence, we must see that breaking God's law is violating that bond of love. Alternatively, Christ fulfilled that rule of love because he loved his Father, obeying him perfectly. So it's important for us to see, okay, yeah, we broke it, Christ fulfilled it, John 17, 4, and now the Holy Spirit applies the word to us and enables us to love our trying God, to obey our Heavenly Father. To this end, the Apostle John writes, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous, 1 John 5, 2-3. Hence, the law is a rule of love, when broken by Israel, fulfilled by Christ, and applied by the Spirit. In essence, kind of what I did last month was sum up, I guess, the most, the, the meatiest parts of that book by J.B. Fesco. I also dipped in a little bit to Philip Ross's From the Finger of God, which is the book that Pastor Ryan recommended, you know, we check out here. And, and as, I, as I was finishing this up, I realized I'm basically kind of just summing it all up for y'all, you know, in, in three sessions. So, um, so if you didn't obey your pastor and read that book, I'm kind of doing it for you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It, it is a really good book. It's, I, it's a little more academic than I would have guessed. Um, it, gets, it gets pretty weighty. It's really good. But now I see why a lot of people recommend it. Um, but I kind of do wish there was a Reader's Digest version of it. That's kind of my aim and what I'm, I'm giving in these uh, Sunday schools here. Uh, this is how Philip Ross puts the threefold division which we were talking about. Its practical theological teaching answers the Christian's question, am I still bound to obey the Mosaic Law? The threefold division of the law says yes and no. The Mosaic Law does not apply without exception to the Christian, but nor can we dispense with it altogether. 
That's that book. One part of the law is non-binding, another binding in its underlining principle, and another ever binding. So it's not just a simple yes or no, I'm under the law, I'm under grace. There's, there's a lot of qualifications we got to give. And this is one reason I appreciated that. Pastor Ryan, you know, before jumping into the moral law, he took time and basically went through the threefold division. So um, regarding, specifically regarding the moral law primarily. So what I hope to do today is spend a little more time in the ceremonial law. I hope to do ceremonial and civil, but they just wound up being too much. And so I'm always, I'm, I've a, I'm a more is less, I'm sorry, less is more kind of guy. So I'd rather just go through one section. And then next time I do this next month, we'll look at the ceremonial in more detail. We will still see aspects of it here today though, because there's a lot of intermingling with the law. As you can see, it's not just nice tight, watertight compartments that all separate them. All right, so let's look at those three divisions of the law and I will give definitions for that. The first, the non-binding laws were exclusively ceremonial. They regulated the Israelite sacrificial system and matters such as ceremonial cleanliness. Although they hold forth moral duties, they were typical of Christ's sacrifice and since he has fulfilled all that they typified, they are abrogated and non-binding upon those who are in Christ. The second division of the law is civil or judicial law. These are laws concerning everyday civil matters to the Israelite community, which were binding in their underlining principles. The Christian is not bound to obey the Mosaic civil code in detail, but the moral principles at the heart of the civil law still bind. And that takes a lot more work, I think, to show and to rightly use and apply. So that's why I want to not just kind of try to cram that in at the end of this. We'll, we'll deal with that more next time. And then the moral law, which is the one that we've been dealing with primarily. The only laws that are without exception ever binding are the laws of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Those Ten Commandments reveal the demands of God upon the demand of God upon all people, not just those in ancient Israel. From the beginning, they were the basis upon which God judged mankind. The coming of Christ and the incorporation of Gentiles into the church did not nullify the Decalogue. It remains binding upon Christians and non-Christians alike. And though this is a Catholic doctrine, it's been believed since the early church, the medieval church, Reformation church, East and West has believed it. It is surprising to me that within the last several decades, it is more coming under fire. Um, there's more and more groups wanting to deny it. And, and I'm always really cautious when a doctrine has been believed for, you know, 2,000 years, we should be very careful in our just dismissal of it. Um, you know, of course, just because it's been around for that long doesn't necessarily mean it's right. You know, we're all Baptists, and we would hear from our Pado-Baptist brethren, well, Pado-Baptism has been around for 2,000 years. And um, I mean, that was one reason I spent like a dozen Sunday schools in examining Pado-Baptism because I'm not convinced that the paedo-baptism that we talk about today, or that our brothers talk about today, is the same as it was in the medieval church or the early church. It's very different. There's very different reasons for paedo-baptism. So just because it's been around for 2,000 years doesn't necessitate you should believe it, but I would be very careful before just simply dismissing it. I, I tend to uh, err on the side of safety. Um, but consider these following quotes from recent uh, church history, just recent decades, like I said. Uh, take, for example, the founder of two evangelical seminaries, apologist and author Norm Geisler, who is very influential in evangelicalism generally. And I would say his view, you know, if you throw a rock, hit a church around this area, 90% of the time, it's probably going to be this view of the law. Um, 
he, it's the typical dispensationalist view. We start talking about the law, we get into issues of covenant theology, dispensationalism. We also get into issues of eschatology even, but we'll save that for another time. What he's really rebutting here in this quote that's coming up is that there's any kind of moral aspect of the law that still binds today. He says, quote, the law of Moses was a unit. There were civil aspects to the moral law and moral dimensions to the civil law. Indeed, there were moral aspects of the ceremonial law. Nowhere in the New Testament does it declare that only the ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses have been abolished, end quote. For more recent history, and I, and I think this one more deals with um, a lot of Calvinistic Baptists. So it, I think a lot of us had a similar journey. We kind of found the doctrines of grace and then we're like, okay, well, what else do we need to reform in our theology? And we start wrestling with some of the aspects of the law. I've seen a lot of brothers kind of, kind of go this route. This, this is more of a um, Calvinistic Baptist in general view here. Quote, as evidence for the wider sweeping conclusion that everything moral is comprehended in one of these 10 commandments, both the larger and smaller catechism offer just three verses, Matthew 19, 17, 18, and 19. And by the way, he, he should have said that it's the larger and, and shorter catechism. There is no smaller catechism, but we'll let him keep going. This is surely much too narrow a base from which to draw such a comprehensive conclusion. Further than that, assuming that Matthew 19 contains the best evidence for this opinion, we must note that it was not available to Old Testament believers at the time. He also, uh, these authors, Tom Wells and Fred Zass, will go on to say, you know, that this theology was always found wanting. Um, they, they really put big questions on it. And this was really big, and um, this even came into Reformed Baptist circles, I would say, in the early 2000s and caused some rifts. And um, this is something still highly debated. So this is, um, uh, we do have a lot of probably Baptists that are closest to us. A lot of them will go this route, just, you know, and it, it usually always comes down to the rejection of, of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath and whatnot. Um, but yeah, this book and its theology, okay, I basically said all everything I had in my notes. Um, one reason, if you remember last month, I mentioned that the people who put out, originally those, those Westminster documents, they were originally put out without scripture proofs. Parliament really wanted them in there. The men grudgingly ultimately agreed like I said last time, they didn't want them in there because they didn't want people thinking wrongly of them, saying things like this, like, well, if you only have three verses and this proves your point and it's from the New Testament and you're talking about Old Testament people, it doesn't make any sense. You know, these guys, John Murray, who writes on the Westminster Assembly uh, in great detail, he mentions that they would have had to have volumes to bring up all the scripture proofs that would have truly appeased the men who wrote these documents because what they were doing was exegeting texts. So, some of these theologies, they couldn't just slap a verse on. You know, the classic example is the Trinity. What one verse do I slap on to prove the Trinity? Like, no, it takes a biblical theology. It takes exegeting multiple texts. It takes understanding theology from Genesis to Revelation. So that's one thing. Um, and probably closest to us and probably the most modern example, I'm going to give one more example, is the pastor who seceded John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist in Minnesota, which... A couple of years ago, I lived like five minutes away from there. Um, I never, I, I wanted to attend one time just to kind of say I went there, but I was always doing other stuff with the other church I was at on Sunday, so just, it never happened. No, I was also really busy with everything else going on there in Minnesota, but uh, his name is Pastor Jason Meyer. He is the current pastor there at Bethlehem Baptist, and he has a book on the law specifically, and here's what he says. 
The New Testament itself does not make these three distinctions, and no one living under the law of Moses seriously thought they could pick which parts were binding and which were optional. There's a, there's a fallacy right there you can already see. God's law comes as a set with no substitutions. Therefore, exegetes should not read the three distinctions into New Testament texts that speak of the law as a single entity. Furthermore, one will find it challenging to divide all laws into three neat, watertight compartments. Again, that's kind of a straw man. No, one, no, one, no proponent of the threefold division says things like that, like it's a nice, clean, tight, watertight opponent. You know, with, it, the, the thing that shocks me from all these three examples, because if you read the context, if you read the wider works, that's most of their argument. There's not really much more to their argument. They dismiss it so easily. And again, dismissing 2,000 years of theology, I think you've got to do a little more work, a little more lifting. But anyways, um, contrary to what, what he says of that, our own confession says that, uh, and it says it in the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duty. So we've always recognized that there's an intermingling, that there's not three watertight compartments. So that doesn't really prove anything. But there's, there's a myriad more examples I could give. Um, but these men aren't ultimately going to be convinced from our confessions or from church history. You know, I think they are being good Bereans. They want to see it from the Bible. So I think we can give that respect to show them that. And just for our own uh, convincing, our own stirring up by way of reminder to be convinced of these things. So now let's look specifically at, um, this is another kind of quick high-level review of all the things Pastor Ryan already went over regarding the Decalogue's distinctness. And I think, and note that these are all from the Old Testament. These are all from the writings of Moses. So I think from Moses himself, you can prove uh, this threefold distinction. Uh, note that the Ten Commandments themselves are called the Ten Words, Exodus 34, 20. I won't read all the verses. We've, we've gone through this. It's just still review. Uh, they were written with the finger of God on stone tablets. Nothing else is said to hold that. They're considered the covenant themselves. They're put into the ark, not beside it. Other laws were put beside the ark, but the Ten Commandments specifically were put in the ark, and nothing else was to be added to them. That's a in really interesting aspect that's mentioned about the Ten Commandments because we see in the other laws what, what is generally called positive law, like laws that could be added on to the, the main underlining principle. But of the Ten Commandments, it was said nothing else is to be added to them. You could also note the priority of revelation may come first. And, and in later verses, we'll see where God says, I said this first. This was most important. I, I gave you these laws first when I took you out of Egypt. But uh, going further, then we find certain vocabulary, uh, commandment, statute, judgment. And these are all grouped in Deuteronomy uh, multiple times throughout the Pentateuch. And they're used to distinguish between certain laws. You kind of see these as titles when you're going throughout the Old Testament. And Pastor Ryan will probably bring these up when he goes through them. He's already mentioned one of them. The commandment is, is brought up at the beginning of Exodus 20 and kind of categorizes that chapter. In chapter 21, you see that word judgment there. And then following that, it's, it's a bunch of judicial laws, civil laws. And so we generally find that um, happening there. And instead of going into every single example, I'm just going to kind of give you that, that high level, just know that argument is there as well. Let's look at one of the examples. Quote, so he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments. And those are those, those words that we, we find grouped and repeatedly used throughout 
uh, the law, that, were, that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess. And this was actually the verse that Thomas Aquinas used to make his argument for the threefold division of law. And he, he looked at those words very technically. And generally speaking, those definitions do hold true that when you talk about commandments, you talk about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, statutes, it's generally talking about the ceremonial laws and judgments more dealing with the civil laws and the penalties that will go with those as well. Uh, Jewish scholars point this out, they recognize it. And, and it, 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 is, it is interesting that even from you know, just Jewish scholars who only believe in the Old Testament, they, they don't say, like some of these men were saying, like, no, the law is, a, is one monolithic unit, no separation. They go, well, it was all given from God. You know, we're, all, we're to obey all of it, yes. But we, we don't say, like, they understand that there are lesser and higher laws. We even see that in the New Testament. Like, why would they ask Jesus, you know, what's the most important commandment if they believed it was all just one monolithic whole? So it just, it ultimately doesn't hold up to history um, or the verbiage or even the New Testaments, you know, seeing the Jews who believe, who are, well, technically the Gospels are still in the Old Testament era. era. Don't forget that. Um, but for a deeper study on this grouping of word usage, Philip Ross concludes with saying this. Deuteronomy's use of words sometimes makes a distinction between the Decalogue and the rest of the Mosaic Code. That distinction does not force the practical theological conclusion that the Decalogue doth forever bind, right? So we don't want to put too much weight in those words that, well, because of those wordings, it means this theology. However, it does further challenge the view that the Old Testament law was written and always viewed as an indivisible whole. So I think we, we, we've gone over the Ten Commandments multiple times, several times, and seen how they're clearly separated. So the next question is, okay, well, what about the ceremonial aspect and the civil aspect? Those, those we don't usually deal with as much. Um, so let's start with a survey of the ceremonial laws. Again, the definition of the ceremonial law, and I, w I wish I would have wrote this up there because it's, I'm kind of going through this definition and, and breaking it down, um, but I didn't, so sorry. The definition is the non-binding laws were exclusively ceremonial. They regulated the Israelite sacrificial system and, matter, and matters such as ceremonial cleanliness. Although they hold forth moral duties, they were typical of Christ's sacrifice. And since he has fulfilled all that they typified, they are abrogated and non-binding upon those who follow Christ. So from Moses' writings, we could ask again, you know, that's one of their, like, Moses wouldn't have recognized this. From Moses' writings, could we say, like, no, there are definitely, the ceremonial laws are definitely something distinct and clear. Old Testament Walter Kaiser says the following, quote, from Exodus 25 through Leviticus 7, at least, has an expressed word of built-in obsolescence when it noted several times over that what was to be built was only a model or the, the word is pattern, there's the Hebrew up there, Exodus 25, 9 and 40. The real had not yet emerged, but was, as Hebrews 10, 1 argues, only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. In other words, the laws that were given, some of these laws had built-in expiration dates. They weren't going to last forever, and, and we clearly see that how they were given. Um, they were never meant to be eternally binding. They served a certain purpose for a certain time and for a certain people. And these ceremonial laws were ultimately given so that God would dwell in the land with his people. So they needed to be on earth as they were in heaven. 
we see this also from a particular pattern. This so-called pattern turns out to be very, very detailed. So this pattern, this model that was given to, to give all these ceremonial laws, um, we see great detail when God describes the ark and the cover. This is where God was going to meet Moses, and it had particular primacy in the order as well, and had great detail, as you can see from Exodus 25, 10 through 22. The bread table as well had great detail, talked about that, the lampstand, the overall design, the altar, the priestly garments and work, and they were to be produced using specific commands, produced exactly as he commanded them, Exodus 31, 11, after the pattern. And if they weren't, if the, if the duties, the ceremonial duties weren't performed, you know, there's great detail that goes into the specific commands, Leviticus 1 through 9. Then you recall when Pastor um, Ryan was talking about, well, we have Leviticus 10, where Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire. They don't do it according to the specific commands, and God kills them then and there. We don't see that there is a pattern or a model for anything like the civil laws. That's, that's, a, that's those have something, some different verbiage that is often used there. And we see that verbiage. We've already looked at it one time, but it talks about that those are laws to be performed in the land of promise, the land that they are going to have. They're going to obtain Canaan. So, but until then, you know, this was, that was a different group, those, those civil. This here was a different group. That these were patterned after. Again, what is the particular purpose of these laws? The particular purpose behind following them this pattern was so that God could, could tabernacle amongst his people. Where God is no, where God is, again, this just, this just follows from the, the general theology we, throughout, we see throughout the Bible, where God is, no unholy thing can dwell, thus the laws of separation and ritual purity. There were laws related to food, Leviticus 11, childbirth, Leviticus 12, disease, infection, bodily discharge, and again, we see the consequences of God, if you did not follow these, they were serious consequences. He meant what he said. Quote, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Deuteronomy 4, 13 through 14. Again, this is, we can already see, like, okay, these laws are being treated separately than moral and civil. Of this, Philip Roth says, the laws about purity were according to the pattern of heaven in that they banned impurity from God's presence. Unlike the other laws, civil, which ensured a well-ordered state, the laws about purity were necessary solely because God's dwelling in the tabernacle and thereby among the people. Other laws, civil, sought to establish peace in a fallen world, prohibiting sin and specifying penalties. Such laws did reflect Israel's status and relationship with the Lord, but the Pentateuch does not present them as a duplicate of the heavenly order. Whereas the pattern laws connected with the tabernacle reflected another world. And when I first read that quote, I was just like, reflected another world? Wow, and it really honestly got me excited too, because after we hit the Ten Commandments, we're going to be getting into judicial laws and then, and then these ceremonial laws. And it got me excited to see, okay, how do these civil laws here, or these, and these, these ceremonial laws, rather, how do they show a picture of heaven? How did Christ fulfill them? How is Christ better than them, as we see argued in Hebrews? And it, uh, it honestly got me excited for um, a deeper study of, of God's ceremonial laws. Like, yeah, I'm not under them, but 
God gave it to his people, they, they, they had a purpose. They reflected another world. That's, that's, that's an incredible way to put that, that I hadn't re- previously ever thought about. So, uh, Anyways, I think it is safe to say that we can see clear distinctions between ceremonial laws and the rest. However, there is further distinctions we can look, even just looking beyond Moses. Again, so far we've only just looked at examples from Moses. If you look at the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament, we can see the following. Quote, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Question that should be asked here, like, well, isn't it right to obey God and how he said to worship him with these sacrifices and, and these burnt offerings and, and whatnot? Like, yes, that is right to obey, but notice that there is something greater. There's a higher law clearly showing a distinction. It's probably one of the reasons why the scribes and Pharisees could come to Jesus and ask him, what is the greatest commandment? You know, just trying to do the, the greatest thing probably showed their heart in that they cared less about the lesser things. No, we should, we should strive for all, strive for both. Um, but ultimately, God has the heart in mind, right? Not just the sacrifices there. Um, clear, clear distinctions. And we, we see this all throughout, all throughout the, the prophets. A couple more examples. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 6, 6. Again, it's just without love, those commandments mean nothing. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. There, there are things that are greater. This does remind me a lot of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where that church is clamoring after the most bombastic spiritual gifts and the look-at-me type gifts and whatnot. And Paul says, you're a noisy gong, you're a clanging cymbal which, by the way, were Old Testament instruments of worship, those God ordained to be instruments for worship. But in the New Testament, they're, they're pointless. They're not needed. We're not, they're, he doesn't ordain them. Like, and that's what those people are doing. He did not ordain that you use the gifts that way or worship him that way. Um, you're just a clamorous cacophony. You're just, they just become deviants of just annoying noise. Like they're, they're distracting, distracting ultimately, um, and it should not be that. We see that theme again and again, and it, and it always points back to love as the greatest thing. And even it's, it was interesting to me, studying out more the ceremonial laws, how much application just naturally flows out of it, of, of, of how important love is. So again, even though, again, another quote, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos 5, through 24. God's law, rightly used, is just and righteous and good. And it comes back to how we treat one another. And how we treat one another reveals our heart. It reveals whether we're following God's will, which is another way of saying obeying God's law. Remember how the New Testament puts it. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. Can, oh, sorry. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 
20 through 21. And there again, we see that theme. Whoever loves God must love his brother. Otherwise, we're just acting like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, we're doing the sacrifices, the performances, the going to church, whatever it is, but without the heart, without the inside, and if we're, if we're just dead men's bones, then that is not pleasing to God. That shows, you know, if we, if we can't say we love the brethren, you know, there's many tests we see throughout First John that I know you're all familiar with, but um, let's, keep, let's keep reviewing. It's just the application easily flows out of this. So doing and obeying God's commands is showing love. Of course, it is by the Spirit. Your heart is in the right place, and you're doing it by faith for God's glory and not your own. These things always just go right to our hearts and ask us questions. There is even clearer, uh, this is even clearer in the New Testament. We can see Paul making a clear distinction in the law time and time again. So just by way of one example, quote, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision, Romans 2.25. Again, we ask the question, well, weren't the people of God supposed to do this sign of the covenant, circumcision? Well, yes, but if they break God's law, it makes no difference. It, they may as well be uncircumcised. You break, you, they're, they're, they're breaking the higher parts of the law, if you will. So again, we, there, we always see this distinction. I think it's very clear. But let us be wise and heed the principles from these types of verses. Uh, I really like how Soggins in his Amos, comment, Amos commentary puts it regarding that one verse we previously read. He simply puts it as, it's not right, but right is demanded. Not right as in R-I-T-E, but right, R-I-G-H-T, is demanded. Devotion, not devotions. And that's, he means in the ultimate sense, of course. Like I said, we should be obeying the higher and the lower laws, right? There, we shouldn't be looking like the Pharisees and Sadducees, like, okay, which ones can I get away with and which ones will, I'll get an easy pass, whatever. Like, no, we, we should, how can we do both? Um, they, they both matter. God has commanded both of them, so we should seek to follow all of God's law. Emerson's commentary on the same principle sums it up like this. He says, quote, at a deeper level, they reveal a deliberate priority and ranking. He's talking about the mercy and sacrifice stuff. In that there is certain obedience, mercy, the Lord consistently desires and can never hate. While there is other obedience, sacrifice, he does not always desire and may sometimes hate. Whenever Israel's altars are not a means of expiating sin, but a cause of sin, as the proverb says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination of the Lord. Again, clear distinction. We never see God saying, I, I hate that you followed my moral law, but he will say that of his ceremonial law, uh, obviously when it's used, not how it's supposed to be used, the misuse of it. To further show that, uh, I like how Philip Ross puts it. He says, quote, nowhere does scripture suggest that God ever hates obedience to any part of the Decalogue. The Lord cannot despise singular devotion to himself, the rejection of idolatry, the honor of his name, or the sanctifying of the Sabbath. And again, he's just basically giving us the first four commandments, the commandments dealing with God, how we show our love to God by our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God has never said or that, or that he despises respect for parents or life or marital fidelity, honesty, truth, or contentment. Again, what are there? those are the last six commandments dealing with how we show our love to our neighbor as we would love ourselves. And I think that this will be helpful in seeing 
um, particularly those, like, we, could, we could literally go through every single commandment and prove these points. You know, I, think, I think we've seen them. I do want to go just as a high overview through the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, as that's typically the one that those who are against the threefold division, um, they usually have their, like I said, they usually have their sights aimed at, at Sabbath keeping of any sort. I think it's in any sense for the Christian today. So let's see how, if this principle holds it true, that God never says he hates Sabbath keeping or things like that. Because he does say that of sacrificial stuff, which is rather interesting. Um, oh, I have another quote from him. Not even in the, uh, I should just keep reading this instead of saying it. Because he says, I, I purposely quoted him because he always says it better. Um, he says, not even in the case of the Sabbath command, does he hate or not desire obedience? The prophets never direct their ire at genuine obedience to this commandment. It too has moral primacy over cultic, or that is ceremonial law. So just as we saw, he, he never says mercy and justice and loving kindness are bad things. Um, he, he, we don't see him saying that to this either. Uh, so again, let's do a, a quick survey of some of those as well. So I titled this, you know, how Sabbath keeping is ever kept, and it's, it's always a good thing. First, in Jeremiah, he tells Israel that the Lord has no time for their ceremonial obedience. You find that throughout Jeremiah 7. But still, you know, 10 chapters later, he says he wants them to keep the Sabbath holy, showing a clear distinction between there. Isaiah condemns its misuse. He is not okay with people misusing his Sabbath uh, for how he set it up. Yet he expects them to call the Sabbath a delight in Isaiah 58. Ezekiel repeatedly condemns Sabbath desecration. Basically, all of Ezekiel 20, you could look through that, and it's just over and over and over again. It's, it's hard-hitting, and if you were the direct people on the other side of that, that's, that's some rough stuff. Um, but it comes up through, throughout several chapters in Ezekiel. Um, while all the while, he still wants them to obey it correctly. And Amos, who speaks of the Lord despising and hating their religiosity, but then prophesies judgment upon those reluctant Sabbath keepers. They're saying things like, oh, when is the Sabbath going to be done? That way I could get back to, to, to my work. Actually, one of them makes that argument. is like getting back to doing the crop and things like that. And we've been like, man, we want the break. We want the rest. Like, what are these guys thinking? Now, of course, that is their livelihood as well. So. so what is the conclusion in light of all of this? Quote, the category of ceremonial law therefore finds support not only for the pattern or model dimension discussed earlier, but also from the mercy and not sacrifice presupposition found in various parts of the Old Testament. Only obedience to the ceremonial laws may be hated and not desired by God. I will also point out that we, we never see God saying things like that regarding his civil law as well, which is rather interesting. He doesn't say that of his moral law. He also doesn't ever say that of his civil laws. He never says, I can't believe that you try to uphold those skills in the correct way. But again, he will say that of, of, of uh, ceremonial type laws. In asserting the primacy of morality, the threefold division integrates major Old Testament themes. Now, what about the non-binding aspect of the law? We've been giving that definition. Um, because we all really saw that there's a distinction. I think that's, that's clear now from the ceremonial law. So let's kind of end our time here going through Hebrews uh, chapter 10, which is 1 through 14. So go ahead and get your Bibles and turn there, as I don't have this up for there. So I do like to be in the book as well. The author of Hebrews has been showing how Christ 
is better um, than the angels and the priests and the old covenant, uh, old covenant institutional worship and things like that, particularly the mosaic sacrifices and rituals is what he's dealing with in chapter 10. So let's read uh, chapter 10, just starting in verse 1. I want to go through 14. I'll make some comments on the way. Hebrews, 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then here in verse 5, the author of Hebrews begins to quote Psalm 40, a really important messianic psalm. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he says, the author of Hebrews is saying, this is what Christ said, speaking through Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, and I, I love this exegesis, that this, I, I'm convinced that Hebrews is just a sermon, the way it's, because it's like he's, he's making some theological arguments, he gives points, he backs up with scripture like a good Berean, and then he like, expounds on it. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the laws. Like those are according to the, the law, right? Those are good and proper. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The author clearly sees that, that those laws had built-in expiration dates, and that's what's clearly seen in the messianic psalm of psalm 40 when the messiah would come this is what he says he's going to do and so these things go away i was talking to a brother earlier how um when we talk about ceremonial laws like this we say that they've been fulfilled in christ we both like that language uh, but, but he he mentioned to me last week he's like i'm not sure if i like the word abrogated though um and i and i i said i said yeah you know i i don't prefer that wording either actually um i like i really like the fulfilled part because i think I think in my growing up, it was just, that's done away with and don't even look at it. But when you think about the fulfillness part, it's like, okay, well, let me study it out and see how Christ fulfills it and it's better than it, so forth and so on. Um, but again, I, 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 I didn't remember using the word abrogated last month, but then I went back and listened. I was like, okay, yeah, I, I said that. And it, it just naturally flows out when I'm talking about the three divisions of the law. And I think it's because that is confessional language. That's language that's been used throughout church history. And like I was saying earlier, these men picked their words very importantly. You know, the, the Westminster sessions themselves, those took place, you know, for some documents done in four years, some done in six years, and they took over a thousand sessions. There's a thousand times they met together, over a thousand, um, to parse these things out. So they, they were correct in using the word abrogated, I'm convinced, because you see that throughout Scripture. We see that in Hebrews 10 there. Colossians 2 talks about it. Even Ephesians 2 as well talks about those things being done away with. Do you have a question? Yeah. Bust it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Testament is done away with. Yeah, the old covenant. The, mm-hmm, yeah, the, the, the Ten Commandments in the in the aspect that they were the covenant, like we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, they were already in existence before they were given in, to Moses. So, yeah. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. What what he was saying was that uh, when we talk about the law, a lot of times we split it up. But in in this case, he's, he's even though the author of Hebrews is primarily dealing with ceremonial law. Ultimately, it's, it's all ultimately talking about the Mosaic Covenant as a whole. It's oftentimes used law like that as well, and I, I fully agree with that. Yeah, and I, I, was, I was in Richard Barcellus's defense of the Decalogue a lot this last month, and it's, it's rich stuff. And, and um, Pastor Ryan actually did say that a couple weeks ago in one of his sermons. Like, it, was, it was during the part when he brought up, like, we should even see the Ten Commandments you know, as moral law, but also as the covenant themselves. They are called that, you know, at least four times. And I, I, I referenced some of those verses. So it's important to see that as the Ten Commandments, as the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, um, that is abrogated, it's done away with. But of course, they were already in existence beforehand. Um, so that moral, again, we, and that's why we use even the precise language of, we believe the Ten Commandments summarize the moral law. They contain the summary of the moral law. They in, in, of themselves aren't. But we usually just say the Ten Commandments is shorthand, so we like our theological shorthand, so it's good. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point to bring up. So um, uh, let's finish with this verse, though, because um, it's, it's just phenomenal. Uh, yeah, so verse 8, when he said, You have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. There, again, in that context, that's, that's I think, a clear reference to the Mosaic Covenant being done away with, putting it put aside, or fulfilled in Christ, and, and done away with to make way for the new covenant as well. And the book of Hebrews is really what is ultimately convinces me to be a Baptist, that covenant theology. So, um, yeah, verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And I wish we could just read the entire chapter 10 because it talks about how Christ is better. Christ is where the blood and bull of goats fell. Christ did what the law could not do. It's, it's better, it's better, it's better. He's better. Why do we want to go back to shadows or anything like that? Uh, this is how Pastor Ryan summed it up and just a couple more quotes to end us off in summary. We are no longer under the law of Moses in any way that the law prefigured, pointed to, or prepared us for Christ now that Christ has come. Uh, so again, and then, then the last part of this definition was talking about like, well, there's still some moral duties. Again, just a, a very high level, quick summary since Pastor Ryan basically already went over this. He said it like this. There is something about the typological ceremonies and sacrifices that teach us something about the moral law of God. Consider the example of clean and unclean food. We are no longer under that, but the principle of holiness that the clean slash unclean principle represented still applies to us in a sense. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to discipline the man living in sin, but interestingly, he points to the ceremonial law. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
1 Corinthians 5, 7. And again, that's just one example. We can do it through many examples. But I think for all of us here, at least, we don't really wrestle with which parts of the ceremonial law this or that. I, I do think a lot more heavy lifting needs to be done in the civil aspect of the law. And so I do want to give that its own week to, to wrestle with that. And just for myself to read and study more of that. In the last two months, I've been reading. Um, I've realized, I was like, everything I know about theonomy was, was kind of, well, I, I just brought up, I'm, I'm also uh, reading a lot about theonomy right now, um, was stuff from decades ago. I haven't really kept up with the most modern writers and authors of it. And I think it's interesting how much it's advancing in thought, actually. Um, but again, those are something, some things we'll uh, wrestle with next week next month rather, and Pastor, kind of talk about this with Pastor Ryan as well, and, and he says, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, the next chapter in Exodus, we're going to start dealing with judicial civil law, and, um, and he, he makes a lot of really good points as well, and um, I'm, I'm very thankful for him because he, he wants to wrestle with the text, he wants to wrestle with these different views, and look at, okay, what's good about this, you know, what, what doesn't quite get it right, what's way off that we should stay away from, you know, um, but we, we do see sometimes from these different theologies that can sometimes make some good points and some things like, we can like okay, I could see that point there. Um, but again, I don't have any of this written down and well thought out yet, so I'm saving that for next month. But uh, for now, it is 2.50. That's the last slide. We did it. Team, go team. Just kidding. Uh, any other questions, thoughts? All right, let's pray. Well, Lord, again, we come to you thanking you so much for your law, for its goodness, God. We do pray that we would be those people who would always use your law rightfully. That's why we do these important studies on your law, God. We thank you that your law shows us yourself. It reveals to us your will. It reveals to us, as Pastor Ron keeps saying, the heart of Jesus, God. And so we do pray for the next hour when we sit under a sermon uh, about the law, God, that we would see you more of your character. We would see you more clearly. We would see you rightly as we ought, we would see you as the thrice holy God, and that we would uh, humbly bow down and ask you to, to continue your sanctifying work, to remake us after your image, Lord. We do pray that you would uh, give us more and more of a taste for heaven, for your glory, God, and that we would seek your honor in all that we do, God. Please bless our next hour. In Jesus' name we pray.